Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, thank you for joining us today. Welcome. Hello? Yeah, there you go. All right. Jeff, thanks for reading for us this morning. Hey, I'm so glad that you've gathered. In fact, can I just tell you, when you place yourselves intentionally in, in a church gathering like this or in a small group place, you are putting yourself in position for potential change and transformation. That's what happens. I mean, you go to a football game. Anybody to a football game yesterday? Watch one on TV? All right. Spent a little time doing that, Yes. We, 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 don't, we don't come out any different in those situations, nor do we when we come to church. In fact, I would say the transformation is even greater, is even greater. As we want to live for Jesus and follow him, these practices are the way that we do that. Well, today we are going to be talking about being deeply formed by scripture. Yet as we start, uh, we want to ask a very basic question as we start not only today but over the next few weeks this question maybe has come to your mind but it's this can we trust scripture can we trust scripture you may be thinking wait wait this is church right why are you asking that kind of a question it's a, an assumption we come in with well that may be true but i'm not sure we're all there it, it, well, it may be that just, you know, what we do and not do with Scripture as followers of Jesus is really that important. You know, as, if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, that you want to, there may be an assumption on my part that you want to love God and live for him. Yet you may not be there. And so just the same with Scripture, you may not really be in the place where you're kind of like wrapping yourself around it and trusting it. You may be also struggling as you practice reading or really, truly, this is what should happen and we'll get there in a second. Be read by scripture as a practice and a co-labor in forming your heart and your mind and your soul with the Holy Spirit. I think the, the struggle is real regarding scripture. If it's not from your your growing up years and maybe not being a part of the church, it is a part of the culture. Maybe you're here, you're a friend of a follower. You've been invited to consider the claims of Jesus, the truth of scripture, and you're just wondering whether it can be trusted. And I completely understand. It's an ancient text often used for personal and, may I say, in this day and age for political leverage, which causes questions both to the person and to the power grab that's using it. I would encourage you, if you're a friend, to the, a friend and you're listening, allow these moments to open yourself up to the possibility that this ancient text may actually be formational, uh, may be absolute truth. 
So let's consider how we can evaluate whether Scripture can be trusted in these next few moments. I think there are three ways that I'm going to bring to you this morning. One, we can start with the questions, uh, the questions of our friends, right? I mean, how many of you have ever read this scripture from front to back? I mean, thoroughly, all the way through, right? I mean, some of us have and some of us haven't. There's some pretty incredible and strange things found there, right? Why does Ruth lay down at the, at the, feet, of Boaz, at the feet of Boaz? I mean, that's just kind of a strange posture. How does Jacob not recognize Leah on, his, on their wedding night? Who are the Nephilim? As if that weren't enough, and there's so many other things, there's some really cringeworthy or strange things that are in there. Like, what's up with polygamy, right? And even to go a little bit farther, there's rape and there's incest found within the pages of the library of the canon. And also, there are miracles in the Bible which stands in the age of science at odds with somebody who might go, whoa, wait a second, that's, that's out there. I don't know if I can trust that or if I should. Now, this is a simple acknowledgement that there is and have been a breakdown of the trust of Scripture in almost every generation up to this point. I mean, you know, if it was my grandparents' day and age, they would just take it wholeheartedly. They would believe it. But we have moved from those days as a culture and even inside the church from generations that trust scripture. I mean, when reading the story of Joseph or David and Goliath or the walls of Jericho, they didn't question whether they really happened. They didn't question whether it was myth in the terms of what we would think of as not really happening. I I know literature-wise, myth does not necessarily mean that, but in our minds, it does. They believed. They didn't question God. Or question his ways. So there's a lot of skepticism, uh, both outside our faith communities, but I would say, and I would contend, that both inside our faith community too. Some of us have been taught to read scripture in a very truncated way, which has the ability to get us caught on sandbars of our faith, even inside the church. So if you, if so, if that is you, it's completely understandable that you continue to work, you continue to work with scripture scripture kind of in this stiff-armed way. We could walk through this series and start to point at this or that to answer all of those individual questions. And some of them, I would say the majority of them are answerable. There are some that are not. They're the mystery that we sang about earlier. Yet that would place us in a heart posture, not as a follower of Jesus. And we come on Sunday mornings, really kind of out of that heart posture that we're wanting to be, we're desiring to be followers of Jesus. Yet, if that's who you are and that's where you said, I would encourage you strongly to take the claims of the Bible seriously, really, take them seriously and walk that through. But when you start to do that, it puts you in the place of a judge and jury over something that is vastly different than we're used to. Yet again, I want to argue as followers who desire to place our lives in the direct line of God's love, this may not be the best place for us to start our time together today. Yet another way we could evaluate scripture is this, start with the Bible itself. The Bible does say a lot about itself, and this could be fun. 
I mean, it truly could be fun to dig around and find what it says about itself. But as some of you have already thought and perceived rightly, this is just simply circular reasoning. Using the Bible to evaluate scripture mm, could be fun, but doesn't lead us to where we want to be, I don't think. This can also be a non-starter for those of us friends in the room, whether you're online or in person, just related to scripture itself. And as followers, we, we, we don't trust scripture because scripture says we can trust it, right? I mean, we don't trust scripture because of that. As followers of Jesus, to employ this evaluative tool still places in a, post- a heart posture where we become judge and jury based on what we, th- what we think and what we determine. And this, too, is very dangerous. We're exerting control over it, which does not leave us, again, in a correct and right posture of the heart and the mind and the soul. As a people, though, who want to become more loving, loving God and loving all people, we have come to realize that control becomes incompatible with being loving, right? Or at least we're growing in that way. If this is the case, then let's start in a place instead where all the questions our friends have and can bring to the table where it really kind of originates from, right? I mean, if we're Jesus followers, why not start with Jesus? I mean, why not start with Jesus himself? Jesus was, after all, a rabbi and a teacher, uh, which rabbi, that's what it means, is teacher. He taught the scriptures. He was saturated with the word of God. He had the scriptures of his day memorized backward and forward, inside and out. He taught scripture, and while, while he taught, he also, this is the crazy thing, scripture includes it, this is what's wonderful about it, interpreted the scripture and thus took issue with how others of his day interpreted it. I mean, that's powerful. Jesus had a high view of Scripture saying it could not be broken. We already heard it. And we read through the Gospels and we know that Jesus often would quote from Scripture itself and bring it to light and bringing it to a, I would say, a greater revealed light often. In fact, Scripture, he used Scripture to put the devil in his place in the desert when being tempted. While there may be a few of us who like ancient Scripture, Most of us read the scriptures on a daily basis as followers of Jesus because we have come to love and follow him. That's why we don't have this penchant for reading Greek or Hebrew. We have experienced the truth of following Jesus and the scripture go hand in hand, though. In fact, if we do not believe that there's any legitimate, uh, if, in fact, I don't believe that there's any legitimate following of Jesus without an intentional, integrated practice of reading Scripture. You can't do it. You can argue with me all day long, but I don't think you can. But we read it because we come to love and we've experienced Jesus real. Andrew Wilson, in his little book called Unbreakable, says this. Ultimately, you see, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ, the man who is God, the king of the world, the crucified, the risen, the exalted rescuer. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust Jesus. I love him, and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful— 
Well, I will too. And if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular, so be it. Let's take a look at what Jesus says about Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, or there's one in the pew in front of you, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, starting in the 17th verse. He says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. The law and prophets of these days would be referring to the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy right? The Old Testament. And the prophets would have been anything else beyond that and around that. That would have been the rest of his scriptures of the day, and that's what he's referring to. He says, I've not come to abolish them. This word abolish comes from, uh, cattle, from a Greek word, katalusomai, and it's used later in Matthew about tearing down a wall or tearing down a building. When Jesus states it here, they would have understood it to mean I have not come to disobey it or maybe more properly for our context and even our cultural moment I've not come to deconstruct it right he states he has not come to do that but what's he come to do to fulfill it now if you were staying if you were saying something like I've not come to disobey but I've come to they would have come to expect him to say, obey. But he doesn't say that. In fact, he says the word fulfill, which is connected. It's hyperlinked from, uh, to this point from uh, Old Testament passages about him, him, Jesus himself, fulfilling the prophecy about it. Uh, there were people who had, had thought due to the amazing, powerful teaching that he would come to deconstruct and disobey Scripture, but that wasn't the case. He himself, Jesus, was the fulfillment of the prophecy of him. And he says, I have come to fulfill it. Not Scripture, not something else, not a government regime, but I have come to fulfill it. He goes on in verse 18, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Verse 19, Therefore anyone who sets aside, these words used here are similar to the words of abolish. To set aside is related to that word, meaning to uh, not obey, or in this case, and more appropriately, to pick and choose based on what's convenient to what I want to believe, think, or live. I mean, we're prone to that, aren't we? Our disordered desires move us that way. And he says, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands, teaches others accordingly, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, those who, who teach others to, to not do the complete will be least. Those who teach them and lead them by following Jesus in a way of lifestyle will be called great. So if you want to take Jesus seriously and his words that are caught here in, in Matthew 5, you will teach what he has taught. You will live the way he is. He's teaching. 
For Jesus, it could be said that the way we approach the Bible will, determines our level of experience in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that's what he's saying here. It's like, look, if, you, if you're willing to live this way, you will experience what we were even uh, encouraged to kind of lean into in a few moments ago. It's not all about singing. It's about living in a way, in a pattern that allows you to glimpse or live in the moments of heaven now in this place. I think that's what Jesus is trying to get to us. Verse 20, he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Pretty harsh. Pretty strong. He says we must exceed, we must transcend that At this point, it's where Jesus picks up. If you continue to read, you'll find that he picks up scripture passages from the Old Testament and, well, he, you know, he translates them rightly. He he drives his interpretation of those Old Testament passages. As you have heard, this is what I mean. And he addresses the Bible. His desire is, though, through this whole process, that our heart be in the right posture. It's a place of receiving This is so crucial as we follow Jesus, that we may be able to read Scripture well, but but conversely and rightly, that it may read us well. This calls us to the attention of how we might possibly have been trained to read the Bible. In fact, Dr. Tim Mackey has given a definition, uh, terminologies, if you will, to the types of Bibles that have more often have been read in America. Now, you may be thinking New International, King James Version. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about three Bibles read in America. We often read the Bible as our moral guide. As you know, Scripture is used, if you haven't read the news lately, I'm sorry, but it's all over the news, Uh, Scripture is used both by progressives and conservatives to extrapolate their political positions. It's to to back up what they believe is right or wrong. Each stating and claiming that what they do and their reading and their application of Scripture is the whole way, truth, and life to getting to heaven. And can I just tell you that's farthest, farthest from the truth? In fact, it's so far away. I'm not here to be political, but to simply point out that we're that we often go to Scripture with a set agenda. We often go to Scripture with a line of morality we want to have buttressed. We're attempting to advocate for our own ways of thought. I'm reminded with this definition that Dr. Mackey gives us of Joshua's encounter with the angel of the Lord in Joshua chapter 5. Maybe you remember this. They're going to battle. And as Joshua makes his way across the the field, he encounters an angel. And it says this, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us? Are you for the enemies? He couldn't tell. And this is the word back from the angel of the Lord. Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I now, I have come, now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? You see, when we, when we posture ourselves and 
we put ourselves in a political place or a cultural place or some other position and start to read Scripture with that slant, we have then done a disservice to what Scripture is there for. Just as Joshua, thinking that he could, he could pivot God to his side or the other. Now, you can go on and read the story. It's a beautiful story. But our response should be like Joshua's. When we approach God, when we approach Scripture, face down in reverence. Face down in reverence. Dr. Tim Mackey says there's another way that we've often, as followers in in America, have used the Bible. We use it as a biblical theological dictionary. Now, this may tend more to those of us inside the faith community than those outside the faith community because we all have a different slant or a different take on what we think it is. And we come with this framework, looking up words or keywords or ideas and concepts, and we try it, we trace our way through it, whether we're let me just pick on my own, on my own, uh, own uh, theological bent. You know, whether I'm Wesleyan, Arminian, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to Scripture not with an open mind, but really more probably with a determined mind instead of this open mind of, Lord, what do you have? And because of that, it's so easy to not read some passages. We really read them, but we bypass them and read others to just kind of keep our our neck of the woods strong, if you will, instead of allowing scripture just to speak. Allow it to do what it's supposed to do. Uh, the last one, which is m- maybe, maybe most common to many, is the spiritual grab bag, or I like the bumper sticker religion type of things. You, you, you get my eye drift, right? We can simply be people who read scripture for uh, that one verse that solidifies our our view or our need for the day. We open our Bibles like this and we put a finger in it and go, oh, that must be for me today. Now, it's dangerous because then people create bumper stickers out of context and create division out of where there's, where there's designed unity. And in America, I think t- Dr. Tim Mackey's right. We have landed ourselves not in reading scripture in its context and its whole, whole uh, picture, but we've landed in trying to just kind of solidify our positions because we want security. We want safety. We want to think we're, we're, we're okay, I think. Now, are any of these, are, are, are the, these can all be quite helpful, I should say, and at times, they're not necessarily abusive as I'm claiming them to be. But they are dangerous. Because when we go to Scripture, and we then we go to God with the same kind of mindset. Now, in case you think I'm picking on the Americans and the American church harshly, let's take a look at what Jesus said to two ruling uh, religious powers of the day, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. First, the Sadducees. And as we move there, Mark chapter 12, if you have your Bibles, we're going to do a little bit of turning today if you want to. The Sadducees were people, it's going to tell you here in a moment, who did not believe in the resurrection. So we start off in, in a position um, that's quite strange, quite interesting, 
and they're trying to catch Jesus. Verse 18 says, Then the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him with a question. Hmm, got a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife, leaves a wife with, but with no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, in case you think this is weird or offset, I did say it was an archaic piece of literature. And at the time, it was a wonderful way in order to really kind of a, a system to take care of widows. I mean, you kind of have to put yourself in the context and the place and the time without a welfare system, without a, a system that was going to be catching uh, widows. This was a wonderful thing. Yet, odd, I will admit. Now there are seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no children. Now the same was with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. So remember, they don't believe in the resurrection, but they're leaning into this question and attempting to probably get Jesus in a trap. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Now, you're probably thinking what on a cursory read would be my thoughts is anybody getting a clue here? They, nobody should be marrying this woman. I mean, nobody, right? I mean, everybody's dying. It's not a good thing. All right. It's just a side joke, but it's true. Like, really? Seven. I mean, I know it's a complete number but please verse 24 Jesus replied are you not an error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God Jesus is addressing them he's like are you not an error you, you don't get it you don't know the scriptures or the power of God when the dead rise they will neither marry nor be given in marriage they will be like angels in heaven and if you're wondering, yes, Jesus had humor, and he dug a little bit on this one. He's getting them. But now, about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You, you are badly mistaken. He, he tears them apart. It's like, you, you don't get it. You don't know the power of God. You don't know your scripture. You don't even understand. You, you're not understanding the complete text of what has been written. They were a power of the day. Now to the Pharisees, the other religious ruling power in Judaism of the day. John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verses 39 through 47. It says, you study the scriptures. Now, he's, you, you think this is good. He's setting up, you study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You study them. You think you have life because you study them, but you don't come to me who is contained, I'm contained in the scriptures. Everything points to me. You don't even come to me. I, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. 
Friends, this is the posture of the heart. It's about having the right posture. I have come in my Father's name that you do not accept me, but if someone else comes in his own name, will you accept him? How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Verse 45, but do not think I will accuse you before my father. Your accuser, Moses, he just kind of points back to history. Your accuser, Moses, on whom your hopes are set, they study the law. They're diligent about its task. Says you, if you're on whom your hopes are set, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Jesus continues to point to himself and says, look, if you want to believe in the scriptures, you must believe in me. And to these two ruling religious parties of the day, he says, neither one of you are understanding clearly. So as you can see, Jesus corrected the misunderstandings and misinterpretations of both the Sadducees and the Pharisees. His correction was a technical one. Yes, but ultimately, as you read and we read together, it was a relational one directed at the heart towards Scripture to be able to see the revealed one. They were coming to Scripture to prop up their misguided ways and they were leading others that way too. Their hearts were all about getting control and keeping control. As followers of Jesus, we are called to follow Jesus as we love God and love all people. We say it around here, live out love. That's what we want to be known for. And as we read scripture, we want to do that. But we need to allow scripture to read us to transform us, to change us. That's the only way that we're going to be able to live our love as Jesus did. In fact, I would almost say that most people don't have an issue with Jesus. There are few in our neighborhood that would. But Jesus, they don't have an issue with. Jesus was good. He was nice. He was kind. But as we live out love, we need to be surrendering and submitting to the lordship of Jesus and to his word to do his work within us. 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17. For those of us who uh, are familiar with scripture, this will not be unfamiliar to you at all. It says this, but as for you, continue in what you have learned. Now, Paul is talking to Timothy. He's, he's guiding his protege. He's reminding him. He's leaning in. He says, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise. Now, we need to rightly understand this word wise in this context and in scripture, wise does not mean intelligent. It means intelligent and good. It means that you, you know the good to do and you do it. You, you, you lean into and live it out. So he says, which, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And he goes on in verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that 
the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Can I just tell you what that idea of thoroughly equipped means? Uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't, we think of, you know, having the right tools in our toolbox. But as this word is defined in the Greek, it's really this ideal representation of what is complete and mature. What is beautiful. I don't know what you can picture in your mind, whether it be in these days, some of us are thinking about apples and cider and all those things, and my mind can go to apples and thinking about how, how you can find the perfect apple without blemish, without spot. And that's what this means, that as we diligently lean into Scripture and it does its work within us, it does this place of rebuking where it says, hey, you're, you're in the wrong path. You're moving in the wrong direction. That ideology that you've grabbed a hold of is, is incongruent with the way of the kingdom. And correcting and training and righteousness, it's all of that. The telos of scripture is to make us complete and mature like the one we follow. So when we read the Bible to live out love as Jesus would, we read it to be read by it, to be trained and transformed by it. Scripture can bring us into this complete wholeness and as we sang earlier, holiness, separate, distinct, by the word and through the spirit. But when we read scripture, we can read it one of two ways. We can read it informationally or formationally. Information attempts to get the data, gets the data, where formation is slower to digest a sentence or a word, allowing it to play in our minds, almost like maybe some of you are thinking like poetry does. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Information attempts to master the text. It's, it's like going to class, right? And you have to master the text and you have to own it and you have to be able to, to return it back to the professor in the way that it should be returned. But where formation is about the depths of layer of the context, it's taking the time to allow the spirit to move scripture into the multiple layers of our hearts and our lives to do the work that it can do. Information is objective and about control, and formation is about, again, reading, allowing the text to read you and to master you into its ways. Information is about problem solving, where formation is openness to the mystery of what the text is, and that takes a humility of allowing ourselves to be approached that way by the Spirit of God and by the text of God. Now, neither one are wrong, informational or formational. Neither one of them are wrong. In fact, all of us do it. In fact, I would say that when I come to the Bible on a weekly basis, I read it informationally, especially when I'm working vocationally. Yet when we only read Scripture through the lens of information, it leaves out the vital relationship and the heart posture we are to have to the text itself because it is living and active it was god breathed as followers of jesus in fact i would argue that informational reading is aligned to control we use youtube or google or whatever you use and it's all about grabbing information 
probably 99.9% of our time just to get information. And so it's so easy to find ourselves in the text in Scripture reading that way automatically. But formational reading requires surrender. There's a shift that, that's needing to place, take place in our reading of Scripture in order for us to be groomed into its likeness of Jesus and the power of it. How does that happen? Well, we'll get into that in the following weeks and we want you to join us. But let me just talk about surrender for a moment. When we say Jesus is Lord, there's an acknowledgement, especially in the days of Jesus, there was an acknowledgement there was no other. Uh, that would have potentially, like some of our, our family members around, brothers and sisters around the world, that would get them executed. There's a surrender and a submission to that acknowledgement that is acknowledged. There's a formation that already takes place because it's so drastic. In our day, I would say that saying Jesus is Lord places us at odds with any other ideology out there. We don't live, may live in some hostility towards Christianity and following Jesus. I get that. But really, on the interior of us, it's more about the ideologies that we allow to seep through. And we're, when we allow them to seep through, we've, then we move into idolatry. Jesus is no longer Lord, but some idolatry, some thought process has commandeered our minds and our hearts and, and our souls and guides us. We start to then use Scripture potentially in a moral you know, moral way or spiritual grab bag in order to posture ourselves and prop up what we think. But can we just revive this terminology for the day, saying Jesus is Lord, that it would place us in this opportunity for formation to the scripture of God. That our hearts would be put into a place where we can say, oh, yes, yes, this is, this is right. When I come, I need to, I need to intentionally shift from just getting to just being with. It's tough. But it's doable. So as I said, we'll get to that in the weeks ahead as we walk through, walk through a few practices that I think Jesus followed and I think that we can follow in his way about. But I have a question for you today as you, as you leave to ponder. That's it, a question. You can share it with your small group or you can share it with another person. And if you don't have a small group, then you're more than welcome to join one or take somebody for lunch. Have a coffee with them. But I want you to reveal your relationship with Scripture. Be honest with the person you're going to sit down with. Just answer this question. What is the current relationship with Scripture that you have? What is your current relationship with Scripture? And allow that just to set. Allow that just to set in your heart and in your life and move in.